Today on The Black Goat, using social media as an academic professional, how does it fit into the modern workplace? And a letter about being a new professor who might care more about replicability than your senior colleagues do. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava, and I'm here with Alexa Tullett and Samin Vizier. And as always, we record over Skype, so I'm looking at Alexa and Samin. Uh, but this time, for the first time, I'm actually looking at the Hollywood sign in the background, which is very exciting, because um, I'm on fucking sabbatical, and it is awesome. <laughs> I wish, can, can you see the view out my window, Sanjay? Uh, all I can see is, is like, white, bright white. sunshine, yeah. Yeah. It's like um, it's a roof with an air conditioning yeah. system on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, a lot like I, a uh, design. yeah, yeah. No, I think. Uh, um, I mean, my my view back home is not bad. Uh, you know, it it kind of looks over a little grassy quad. But uh, this is yeah. So I'm I'm spending the term three months at uh, USC in Los Angeles, hanging out with Morteza Degani and, uh, I'm actually in Jesse Graham's old office and Jesse, you had a fantastic view. I don't know why you left this place, but, uh, <laughs> Utah's not too shabby either though. <laughs> yeah, no, Salt Lake city is a really nice place. Um, but yeah, I can literally, I mean, I have to squint, but I can literally see the Hollywood sign on the Hills, like way off in the distance. I can see downtown LA. I can look down on the, um, the, the USC Trojans practice field. So whenever the football team is out there practicing, I just boo from my office. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds nice. I, I highly recommend sabbatical to anyone listening. Um, I've been so relaxed. It's been nice. <laughs> the little known secret that going yeah, to right. <laughs> in Southern California is really nice. Well, right, you're right. Especially right now, like everyone's having such shitty weather everywhere. And it's like we, we had a hot weekend, but now it's like in the 60s. It's it's which is my perfect temperature, actually. Um, I don't like when it gets too hot, but um, listen to me being all picky. <laughs> How are you guys doing? <laughs> doing well. We actually had um real threatening tornado weather this weekend not like the last time we recorded the podcast there was actually a tornado warning which is like one up from a tornado watch Hmm. which i think means that somebody has seen a tornado okay do you now when that happens do you go like in the basement or what do you do yeah so we were so this is what we do um my roommate jude calls her dad who grew up in alabama and asks him um, how seriously we should take it. Uh, and usually he is like a little bit more informed, although you like everybody gets updates on their phones and stuff like that too. Um, and then this time, by the time that we were sort of getting worried about it, they had already sort of canceled the warning, but we would go to our basement, which it's very unclear to me whether our basement is safer in that it's underground or less safe in that like, uh, there's a bunch of junk in it and it's not completely separated from the outdoors like there are like gaps where you can see <laughs> outside i still um, think it's probably much much safer is it much safer yeah think? i think basements are a really good place to be in tornadoes i'm pretty sure okay. well there, in St. there's Louis, just more definitely. there's more house above you to collapse on top of you though isn't there well, no, I don't think it's going to collapse. I'm, I think it's going to get yeah. blown away. It'll get it'll get lifted away, and yeah. then it'll just be yeah. How exactly up, like, like what's how going exactly on? do people die in tornadoes? They get, do they get blown away? I don't know. They don't get know. crushed by something. But I think you want to be underground. Pro- probably, if know. you if you're in the tornado, there's so much debris going around. You probably just get like 
yeah. lacerated to death or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, re- I remember as a, as a little kid visiting my grandma and grandpa in Bismarck, North Dakota, and we would occasionally have tornado watches or tornado warnings, and we would go down in the basement. Um, but it, it's one of those funny things where they, the conventional wisdom on those things sometimes changes. Like I know with earthquakes, there's a whole thing about you're supposed to get in a doorway, but then like a few years ago, you, I started seeing like that's actually not true, and, mm-hmm. and then people said, no, it is. And it's like, I, I remember hearing that as a kid, and it, it sounded like very solid, important advice, and, and now it seems yeah, like... like stop, y- drop, and roll, you know? Yeah, it's, it's right, right. It's kind of like, it's the equivalent of like, should you eat fat or not? It's like, Mm -hmm. there's probably some, you know, some new study contradicting the old study every five years. And, you know, they they don't actually know, but they just tell everybody what to do. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. But I I mean, I would say get in your basement. We always went in the basement. And my dog was always afraid because it's like a really narrow stairway down to the basement. So I'd have to like, drag my 80 pound dog down to the basement with me. Oh, wow. Bear did not like the basement. She didn't like any tight. She didn't like hallways. She was a very neurotic dog about thresholds and hallways and stuff. Like you that. had that's there really was like a, that weird thing at your old house where she would like not walk into the kitchen because the flooring changed or something. Oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. I can't remember. Like she, <laughs> I, I don't know if it's because the flooring changed, but like there, it was really unclear why she perceived yeah. that as like an important boundary, but she like wouldn't step over that. She's line. afraid of thresholds, but usually yeah. once she's lived in a space, yeah. Anyway, she's very weird about thresholds and hallways, and especially like corners around hallways. She would not be happy about. Even just like going through a gate in a backyard, she would freak out. Even when it's like open space on both sides of the gate. That's so yeah. interesting. I remember there was this video I saw on Twitter like a week ago of a cat that was eating its food by like picking it up with its paw and putting it in its mouth. And everyone was like, oh, isn't that so cute? And then someone was commenting. And I remember this was a thing that just got publicized a couple years ago. Someone was like, no, dude, like the bowl is too deep. And apparently there's this thing with cats where they find it really unpleasant to have their whiskers touching something while they're eating. So you're supposed to have wide, shallow bowls instead of deep ones. Um, But they, so this cat was showing this behavior that was like, people were interpreting as like oh isn't that adorable or whatever but it turned out there's actually like a thing about cat psychology that just you wouldn't know unless you know you knew something about cats and i don't think it's been well known for a very long time and that always makes me think with animals when they have these behaviors you know i'm not saying this is necessarily true about bear but like you wonder if there's something that like in her mind it like there was some completely like rational rational quote unquote to a dog like instinctual reason why she was doing this and you're just like she's just fucking neurotic what is it about her indoors you know yeah you just never know with animals. It's like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, probably if they were smart enough to think about us, and maybe they are, they, they'd think like some of our stuff is just like oh, super sure. weird. Well, shit. humans like, are why? weird like that too. Yeah. We're scared yeah, of random yeah. things. Yeah. Why are you doing that? <laughs> so, Alexa, you have some good news to share, right? I do. Yeah. So, I found out last, about a week ago, um, that I got tenure. Yay! Which I'm very happy about. <laughs> <laughs> so that means that means for for people listening, Alexa gets to stay on the black goat. She doesn't have to go. <laughs> <laughs> that was my biggest fear. Wait, we didn't tenure. vote yet, Sanjay. We need to read about this. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, yeah nice. we were just going to shun you if you hadn't got no. <laughs> I was like, I was not very reactive to this news. And I was thinking about why. And I was like, well, I just already knew you were going to get tenure. It was so obvious. But then I was thinking about, I hope it's okay if I say this on the air, about like, I mean, I don't know what you're going to say. Not that so long ago when like you were pretty scared, actually. Like there was a time where there was like some fear because you, you had a dean who was being crazy. Um, yeah, no. And I was so thinking about that. I was, I was like, oh, it, I should have like reacted like it was a big deal. <laughs> Wait, wait, wait! Before we go on, have 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 they actually signed the paperwork? If we if we like badmouth <laughs> yeah, your dean, right. is that going to get you in trouble? I, I, I think the dean has signed off. I think it's okay. Okay, all right. <laughs> well, let's talk about this fucking asshole of a dean. <laughs> well, but they changed the rule. Like, they you were hired under one set of conditions, and then like the year before you went up for tenure, they were like, oh, by the way, you have to do this other thing anyway. Yeah. So it's really yeah. Fair I mean, I, I guess like I, it feels really nice um in the way that like no longer having a stomach ache feels nice where it's like (laughs) i feel good now in contrast and like you actually samin your um supportiveness about tenure i think mostly has come in the form of you occasionally like texting me and being like hey remember when you were crying a year ago about being worried about tenure you don't have to worry about that anymore i actually thought Which about texting you that nice. like after we talked about how i wasn't reacting about your tenure i thought about texting you, hey remember and i was like i think i already texted you that like four times so maybe yeah maybe that's overkill it's like it's like the opposite of the Facebook memories thing where like Facebook will show you your pictures from a year ago and they're always like happy things because that's what you post to Facebook. And Samin's like the Facebook <laughs> miserable <laughs> memories of, of for Alexa. Like, do you remember one exactly one year ago today? Yeah, right. <laughs> like I, I have it in my diary. <laughs> well, I do know exactly when it was because it was at Sips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the first Sips. Yep. Yeah. That, I mean, that's interesting about changing, changing the rules because that, that's something that you know, like, I mean, universities should be keeping up with their, like, continually revising their standards and rules, right? Like, keeping up with the times and whatever. Um, I'm not saying they always do that well, but it is kind of interesting with, like, with faculty coming in. I mean, I've been thinking about this because we we just hired five people in my department, which is insane because um, we're a department of about 30 people. Um, and, you know, but I've been thinking about, like, all the changes going on in the field and how we now have all these assistant professors coming in and this would actually be a good time for us to get together and say like you know what do we want our tenure standards to be to sort of reflect things not change them midstream for the people that are already in our department unless they want that want that but you know to sort of say like what what would be good for these people i mean that would be a good way to do it the bad way to do it would just be like fuck we just decided like you need three more grants than we used to tell you you needed and mm-hmm. you know go back and get one in the next six months i mean that's a like sh- i don't know if that's what happened to alexa but that would be like a shitty thing to do to someone but there could be a good version of that right like if you sort of say to people like how do you want to be judged and and what's what are the you know um what are the standards but uh, i guess that- I think that's so hard because the department can decide that, but they don't control the dean's standards and the college's standards and so on. I mean, they can have some influence, but... Yeah, I guess it depends on the university. I mean, at at our university, and especially my department, has a lot of sway, and and our dean is very very responsive to the idea of like we're going to judge people by their field's standards. And so we we would have to say, like, this isn't just what we as a idiosyncratically as a department want but this is like our vision of you know how we want to be excellent we always have to use the word excellent mm-hmm. like in our field and if we, if we can justify it that way 
we can we can certainly sell it and say like these are you know our dis our interpretation of the disciplinary standards or this is our vision of where things are going we could uh, yeah we couldn't just say like randomly like oh we we just want to tenure people with you know no publications or whatever because that's how we roll um but yeah anyway Sorry, I didn't mean to pivot away from Alexa's good news. <laughs> Which is worse, Samin not responding or me going off on a tangent? <laughs> well, um, with Samin, it's balanced because she told me this week that... Wait, so what happened? We were talking on the phone and you were like, oh, so, you know, like my grandma died like two weeks ago or something and blah, 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 this happened. And I was like, what, your grandma died? <laughs> um, so... I, I feel like I should have known that as a as a good friend. Uh, although I guess like really you needed to. Call yeah, me there's no way you could have known. <laughs> well, I found that on Instagram. So if you were following my cousin on Instagram, you would have known. Um, yeah, but I'm not close to my grandma. She lived in Iran her whole life. I saw her three or four times in my life. But I'm sad for my dad. But yeah, I mean it's funny. Yeah, like I I think you and I, Alexa, both have like pretty loose definitions of what friends should expect of each other and so I think it works okay I'm like oh yeah the tenure thing cool good job I don't know what you mean <laughs> way I have to really go strict yay <laughs> well should we do our letter yeah um, do you guys yeah. have this thing um Skype is like pulsating this red heart at me and like really wants me to heart you guys I'm gonna heart you guys and see what happens no, I'm not seeing that at all. Maybe, maybe, oh, maybe oh, they have emojis. some kind of like running sentiment analysis that's telling Samin to emote more. <laughs> there, <I'm emoting>. <laughs> <laughs> you guys don't have that? No, because you're the only one that yeah, needs to emote apparel. more. Yeah, it's <laughs> it, can, it can tell, Samin. Yeah. <laughs> Here, I'll just be, I'll be a red like, pulsating heart for a little while. <laughs> there's some machine learning algorithm that knows that like I just got tenure is supposed to get a response yeah, right, and right. you know <laughs> okay all right a uh, letter okay letter all right um dear the black goat people have made the case that young'uns are more up-to-date on the new best practices and care more about using them than many senior colleagues my question is what advice do you have for junior faculty who want to help the reproducibility movement and use and teach new best practices for scientific integrity, but also don't want to butt heads with the wise senior faculty in their departments who may be training the same graduate students um, in different ways. Should we keep to ourselves and ultimately stay out of it, it being, I guess, the spotlight, passionate, advocating, etc.? Presumably it's good for the movement if people who care about the movement actually get to stay in the field rather than being ousted by senior faculty who are ticked off at them. Or is tenure really about merit? As a follow-up, seriously, why aren't more senior people on board? Signed, a junior faculty person who, let's face it, kind of sucks at department politics. I've heard this from so many people. So first, I think one one reaction I have is you're not alone. Like this is a situation yeah. for many, many people. Right. The other piece of advice I have that's really quick is um, invite an outside speaker to come and talk about replicability. Cause I oh, think yeah, that a there's a lot idea. of stuff that if someone else tells your department, they can, you know, react to that person rather than you mm -hmm. having to say it. So I, I have, uh, I've sort of mixed, actually I have kind of mixed opinions about that. And I think a lot depends on the specifics of the department politics, because I think that there are in the same way. And we've talked about this before with grad students and their advisors, right? Like in the same way that, Graduate students, um, 
sometimes have the ear of their advisors to say things that won't come across as as much threatening I think and I would not give this as blanket advice so this is like very dependent on your read of your relationships with your more senior colleagues but I I think that and I've I've certainly heard stories of like departments that had an outside speaker to come talk about replicability and it blew up because it was like an outsider people took it as an outsider coming in and wagging their finger at them Um, whereas you know if you're the new person um, and again, this is very dependent on the politics. So, so you do have to be, I wouldn't give this as blanket advice, but a lot of times the situation with a new person is like, they were excited about you and they, they brought you in because they're excited about you, your research and, and how you do your research. And so some of this would depend on how visible it was that you cared about these issues or that they were part of your work. But you might have opportunities to, in a non-confrontational way, I mean, I I find, like, in the same way that, like, you know, in relationships, right, like, using I statements is really (laughs) important. Like, this this is how I do my research because this is what I think is best for me. And and so rather than prescriptively saying, like, I think you should be doing it this way, I think your research is all p-hacked garbage and you suck Mm -hmm. and whatever, you know, to to be like, uh, to come in and with the graduate students that you interact with or with others to just be like, this is how I've decided is the best way to approach my research. Um, and, and that can be a less threatening way. I mean, there, there's definitely, you know, we've talked before about the sort of moral minorities research that even that can kind of trigger some people sometimes because they, they, even if you're not saying anything judgy at all, people will sort of read that into it. So this is why it, it has to be, re- you know, carefully done. But, you know, in the same way, like you can, you don't have to be telling graduate students that work in other labs, you ought to be doing it this way. But you can be saying like, I, I pre-register and here's how I do it but and here's how to do a pre-registration. That doesn't really work like in that. practice. If you're teaching a class and you're teaching about pre-registration, you're teaching also that like when people interpret a p-value and, and they didn't have a planned analysis, that p-value doesn't mean what they think right. it means. Like, But you yeah. can you can stop. You can, Yes, you no, definitely. Right. So it's not just the I statements, but you start with the I statements and then you teach them the general principle, but you stop it saying here's how you should be doing it in your work in this other Yeah, lab. but there's a lot of stuff. I, I don't know. This is like a bigger rant about replicability, but there are things that if like, what about what should you say if a student asks you, hey, I just read a paper and it had four studies and all the p-values are between 0.01 and 0.05. I, like I've heard that that means it's like uh, that's unlikely to happen when there's a real effect and no p-hacking. Like if you're one of their advisors or you're a professor in their program and you're responsible for training them, there is a right and a wrong answer to that. And yeah. you can get in trouble I, with I your think, senior colleagues for saying, think, speaking the I truth. I think where it, where, it gets, where it gets the diciest is when you're telling people about how to do the work in the senior colleagues' labs. I know, but like, I, I don't think anyone is going around saying you have to do it this way. Like, I don't, I just think that's a straw man. Like, I don't think they're, <laughs> not nobody, but these junior people yeah. who I hear from, the thing they're worried about getting in trouble for is not, they're more savvy than that. They know not to go around saying like, everybody should be doing this. And if they're not doing this, it's bad and whatever. But there are subtler things that are still like clearly judgments on, you know, the the correct interpret. If you're not going to pre-register, then, you know, interpreting your results this way is probably not valid. And I'm not saying you have to pre-register, but like it's, you know, then you can't interpret the p-values the same way and so on. And I think even that is getting and is putting those junior people in in difficult positions, even if they're savvy enough not to go around telling people that they ought to do things and 
you know like i so part of me um wants to agree but then i guess like maybe i have like really nice colleagues who are pretty um open to hearing about stuff like this but i don't know like i'm not sure that there's always a huge threat to just like saying what you think about these things right like so if you're teaching a graduate class and you're telling people it's better to pre-register and you're telling people to be skeptical of p-values close to 0.05 like are are is it really like something to be afraid of that other faculty are going to hear that you are saying these things and punish you so i think i think it's helpful to think of different kinds of senior colleagues who aren't clued in right there there are the I think they're 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 the sort of the people that are kind of polarized who have very strong opinions about like they they don't like the way things are changing and they you know they they think x y and z is wrong and then there are people who are kind of the not plugged in clueless middle and I think the not plugged in clueless middle is a, a, a larger group or people who are sort of aware that there's this discussion but they don't quite get it or they don't quite get how it applies to their work or they they have this vision of it that's more extreme and strident than it really mm-hmm. is um, and and that's where I think not telling them how they should be doing their work but saying talking about I mean I agree with you Samin that you should be talking about the actual fundamental scholarly issues and so I think yeah. You shouldn't say you should pre-register yeah. to, to graduate students. What you should do is you should teach them the, pr- the underlying principles from which pre-registration stems. That it, you know, you should de- guess, be teaching them yeah. the rationale and the justification. But I think what I'm saying is even that is risky. Like I think that from what I'm hearing, it's not that people are being oblivious and going around telling people you should do this, and if your advisor doesn't do this, they're bad. Or whatever. like I don't hear any mm-hmm. of that, and I trust. You know, obviously, I have to rely on people's reports of what they're doing, but they're people who seem savvy and nuanced and so on. But I still hear there being not like direct backlash. I think you're right, Alexa. Like most colleagues aren't mean and so on, but just like people being pretty uncomfortable with that and feeling, yeah, I don't know, feeling threatened and feeling. And it comes up, you know, it could come up like on a search committee where there's real decisions at stake. And if your colleagues don't see eye to eye with you about like what, what are signs of strong, robust research and what's not and so on. Yeah. Like, and I think it's just super, super difficult to navigate that. And I'm not, I guess I'm not actually saying that you should teach grad students the scholarship. And I don't know, because I think, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is even that I think is actually risky and you have to read your colleagues and you have to figure out what is going to get you in trouble in your department. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like at this point, I think it's very possible to, as you say, Sanjay, like talk a lot about the fundamental principles that would lead to one adopting these practices and in fact I think that maybe not teaching them is sort of like being deliberately out of date right um so like I think it's possible to do that and not necessarily so I think this comes to the the part of the letter when the person's asking about like the spotlight or passionate advocating etc right I definitely think there's a way to teach students about this, to use it in your own work with your own graduate students, maybe with other students you collaborate with, without really being a passionate advocate. And maybe um, you could, if you felt like it was necessary in your department, avoid some 
like direct attention that way. I do think if you sort of brand yourself as like a replicability um, person and become really vocal about things like that, then there are some people like, I, I think it's more likely that you could be, you should be concerned about, um, about like having a negative rep, uh, reputation. Uh, but I also think it's really, it's really important not to underestimate your colleagues because, you know, if you sort of like start from the assumption that people will, um, be reasonable and not like reject your ideas offhand and not be defensive, um, then I think that like opens up space to talk about things. And so like I occasionally recently have given like talks in my department about these kinds of things. And there's a really, really wide variety of awareness about these kinds of issues. Some people basically know nothing and some, a few people know quite a bit, but not that many. Um, so like the, the approach that I've taken is to try to talk about just like things that can make adopting these changes like easier ways that you cannot sacrifice productivity and things like that. Um, but like I say, maybe maybe in my department, um, I'm a little bit spoiled or maybe I don't know what people say behind my back or something. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that <clears throat> that's why for me, like going going to the the scholarship depersonalizes it a little bit. Right. Because you can say, yeah, here's here's what you know, here's what happens to P values when there's flexibility in the analyses or here's, you know, here's this meta science study or the statistical analysis or something else. And you can say there's this scholarship and I'm persuaded by it. Mm -hmm. And that's that's why I am, you know, and I, I'm persuaded that's enough of a problem that I'm doing X, Y, Z. And I'm going to teach you graduate students how to do X, Y, Z as well. Um, and I'm persuaded enough that evidence that looks like this is less persuasive to me than evidence mm -hmm. that looks like that, et cetera. And then if someone wants to disagree with you, you c it goes to, well, I'm, I'm basing it on this scholarship that yeah. I found persuasive. Mm -hmm. So yeah, no, I don't think this avoids the politics. I think the, if the goal, if your goal is to avoid bad politics, then you're going to be in trouble because if, if your go goal is to avoid all risk of bad politics, you're going to be in trouble, right? Because yeah. the way to avoid pissing anybody off is not to ever take a stand on anything mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is more the continuum of like, where where do you find your comfort zones or, or appropriate behavior and, and where do you kind of stop short? And that, that's why I'm saying that like talking about like how you do your research and, and grounding that in intellectually, not as like, uh, not as I'm part of this cool hip movement of mm -hmm. young people or, or that, you know, yeah. not putting it in moral but terms, the, but yeah. If you participate in like a triple R or if you go to SIPS or whatever, I know some people who have colleagues who, even if they're mm -hmm. not trying to push that on their colleagues or anything like that, but their colleagues think, oh, now you think you're part of this hip young movement or right. whatever, like, you know, that gets... I, I've heard of people, and I think I, I think you guys are right, and I don't want to be overly pessimistic. And I think most departments, you you take some risk by doing these things, but not. But I wouldn't assume that, yeah, yeah. that it's going to be a high risk or a high cost. But I do think there are some senior colleagues in some departments where they take aside junior people just for doing something like publishing a replication study or right. or going to SIPS and being part of SIPS or things like that, and say like you should be careful, like blah blah blah. These people have mm -hmm. a bad reputation, yeah. things like that. Mm -hmm. So like I don't want to. I think you should, I think what I've told people who've asked me is like, trust your gut. Like if you get the sense that your colleagues really are holding this against you, you don't, you don't yeah. have to be a martyr, right. you know, like you can let the people who are in more secure positions carry mm -hmm. the, the weight. 
but and also I, do. I mean I think I, I think that you have to you have to do your research of course the way I don't that mean you that. think is best well and but uh, no let me so I think the a consequence of that is you're going to be training all the graduate students who work with you to do it that way and so there's no way not to make any waves at all um, it's it's going to be on your CV it, when you're up for evaluation and merit and tenure and all those things. You're going to be teaching graduate students who are working with you. And so it is going to happen. And so I, I do think you need to be prepared to have these kind of conversations. And, and I also, I think, you know, where, Samin, you and I might be thinking of different versions of the senior colleague where mm-hmm. I'm I'm thinking of the sort of, the hesitant, uneasy, doesn't know all the issues, kind of thinks things are... And if you're the non-threatening person who can talk about these things in scholarly terms, talking to a person who has a basic presumption of good faith in you because they hired you and they wanted to hire you. And obviously, if you if you were like hired in a polarized decision, this is why I said this is not blanket advice. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you were hired in a polarized decision and there's someone who's against you, this could break down. And if you have one of those senior colleagues who has staked out affirmatively an anti-replicability, anti-open science position because they think that this is all about, you know, whatever they think it's all about um, or they think it's not valid, then it, that's a different story. Mm-hmm. But but I, I think that, you know, m- the, the numerical majority of these senior colleagues are going to be the kind of hesitant, uneasy folks. I think the salient examples are going to be the ones that will go out of their way to give you a hard time. Yeah, but it doesn't take a lot of people going out of their way to give you a hard time to make you yeah. really nervous about tenure. Like if it's yeah, if you have 10 true. senior colleagues and yeah. one out of 10 is like that, that I would be nervous about a vote where yeah. there was one yeah, person. Yeah, but but I also think that you I mean yes, and and this is where this is all just about where do you draw the line because yeah. you can go too far, you can go not far enough, but there, there does have to be some amount of risk taking to be a successful academic, to yeah. be a successful scientist. Yeah. There has to be risk taking in your science. You have to be willing to stake out new ideas that might not work. You have to be willing to stake out new ideas substantively that might rub some people the wrong way. And we, and we know of examples of people who have been very successful by defining themselves in opposition to the scientific mainstream. We also know examples of people who've been hammered by more senior people in their field who don't like their new different ideas. Um, But you have to do that because the alternative to doing that is doing boring, uninteresting, not scientifically progressive research. And I I think this this isn't the exact same thing, but I think that there are some parallels to this. Like, you do have to be willing to take some risks and you have to be willing to be not too risk averse. And if you have those senior colleagues who are going to hammer you for it, um, if, if they're in your department, I think giving in to them completely is not going to be good for you. It's not going to be good for your soul. It's not going to be good for your research program. I will say that like, I think that there are some risks that are bigger than others. And one situation that I think can get really tricky, and actually you do, you have a big opportunity for um, a lot of communication about these kinds of issues in a very concrete way, but it's I think much higher risk is collaborating with people in your department, especially if you're involving graduate students who do research really differently than you do and have really different views on these kinds of things, because then you really do get into situations where it's like you are putting your name on something and maybe you're working with a graduate student who's also putting their name on something where like if you don't like what somebody else is doing, 
then this puts you, that puts you in the really awkward position of either just going along with it or saying like I'm not okay with this you need to change it which does get into like personal yeah um, attacks and so, so I would I, I think you can avoid maybe some pretty contentious situations by being pretty careful who you collaborate with in your department yeah I agree um, and I agree also with everything you're saying Sandra like I wouldn't recommend to somebody to change the way they do their research or to completely you know pretend that they don't care about these things even if they have senior colleagues who are pretty mm-hmm. harsh on them I guess I just like the advice I give I think some people are just so hard on themselves they think that if they really believe in this and they're really committed to it then they should be trying to change the culture in their department and so on and yeah that would be nice but I think it's okay it's, I, in the cases where there really is a very high risk or there are high costs I would say like it's okay for you to kind of take a back seat in your department just do your research the way you want to do it, train your grad students the way you want to train them, and then go to SIPS or go on Twitter or find collaborators at other institutions and like be kind of a live and let live type person in your department. Um, if that's a kind of, dep- if that's a vibe you get from your department is that that's the only like viable strategy or that there's just too high of a risk for other strategies. I think that it's okay to do that as a junior person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, maybe we should. Uh, We're still talking about the letter. Yeah, <laughs> should we, maybe we should wrap, wrap up the letter and and actually go on to go on Twitter is a good lead in for our next yeah. topic. But uh, yeah, so um, thank you to junior faculty person who, let's face it, kind of sucks at department politics for your letter. And uh, if you're listening and you want to send us a letter to discuss on the episode, or if you just want to send us feedback. Um, email us letters at theblackcoatpodcast.com. Uh, you can also reach us on Twitter at blackgoatpod. We have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash blackgoatpod. And we really appreciate hearing from people, uh, whether it's letters to discuss like the one we just did or just feedback or thoughts or ideas, um, people who interact with us on Facebook, on Twitter, um, and uh, if you subscribe and rate us on iTunes, that helps people find us as well if that's something you care about and want to actually happen. Um, so thank you. By the way, I was just talking to somebody who was saying that like it was great when we did letters where we all agreed because then like the advice was really clear, but it like made them uncomfortable when we disagreed. And I was like, oh, I was like trying to find points of disagreement with Sanjay and Alexa because I thought it would get boring if we always mm-hmm. agreed. So yeah. well, that that I apologize to that person for the letter <laughs> we just had. Yeah. Um. <laughs> no, but again, like I don't think we actually disagree that much. I'm like trying to find points w- to debate because I thought that would m- be more interesting. But. I, I thoroughly disagree that we agree. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, it's like when, uh, it's just like when like mom and dad argue. And yeah, right. Yeah, and the kids are like, I remember I, as a kid, like my parents, they would rarely argue in front of us. But when they did, if we didn't see them make up, uh, it was like very, like, it, you know, it, it, it was never comfortable as a kid, but it was like, you know, seeing them make up made, made a big difference versus just if like they were sort of going back to normal later and you're like, wait, wait, yeah, right. that thing. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, so, so we do like each other yeah. still. <laughs> for now. <laughs> All right, for now, yeah. Um, so we wanted to, for our main topic today, we wanted to talk about social media, using social media as uh, an academic. And it's it's really it's an interesting topic because i think that that is something that has changed i mean social media 
has only been around, I think, as, as kind of a big part of people's lives for, you know, maybe about a decade or so. It's It's been growing. I mean, I guess Facebook technically goes back to like the early mid 2000s, but it wasn't really a sort of commonly used thing until kind of the late 2000s. But social media is becoming uh, more and more a part of academic life generally. And so, yeah, we just kind of wanted to talk about what are some of the ways that people use social media? Do you even need to be on it? Um, how does it fit in? Is it a way as a way to promote research, as a way to find out about research, as a way to network, or all those other things? Um, maybe a good starting point. Uh, although I don't know if this is a good starting point or this should be like an ending point. But um, you know, one question people sometimes have because I've I've done mentoring lunches at conferences around social media, and a common question is like, do I need to be on social media? Like. Do I need to, if it connected to the academic world? So, like, if someone's listening and let's say they, you know, they listen to our podcast, but they're not yet active on Twitter or they're, you know, or whatever. I like, like that you say yet. <laughs> like, yet. <laughs> There's my answer. <laughs> of course they will be. But uh, yeah, like, what, what do you guys think? Like, if, if you, when you talk to graduate students, um, if they're not, on Twitter or if they're if they haven't connected their Facebook account to PsychMap or some of the other groups or things yeah. like that. I think like so you know I've wondered this because I am technically on Twitter but I'm definitely nowhere near as active as either of you um, and I'll go for like days without looking at Twitter um, and I guess in part I think it depends a little bit on what you mean by social media. I do think that if you were an academic who ignored all forms of social media so you didn't have facebook you didn't you weren't on twitter you didn't look at blogs which starts to feel like a slightly different thing you didn't listen to podcasts then i think there would be important things that you're missing now obviously we're always missing important things like we're never like up to date on everything or was or as well read as we would like to be um but i think yeah i think you would be missing out on a lot of the like most current um, developments in your field. Um, but then I think there's the additional question of like, sort of like if you're being exposed to some of these things, how active do you need to be? Do you need to be like make, like posting on social media? Do you need to um, be caught up on Twitter or Facebook in order to, you know, be fully informed? Um, yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you think that like if you were totally isolated from social media, you could be perfectly sort of involved in your field? I definitely don't think you need to be posting. I think it's fine yeah. to be a lurker. Yeah. Yeah, I think lurking is fine. I think uh, and I think lurking is a good way to start. Yeah. Um, and it, and if that ends up staying what you do, I think that that's fine too. Um, I. Yeah, you know, I I never I, I never tell people they need to be on social media, like actively posting and whatever, um, and you know, and I think lur lurking is a really good way to start too because there's there are cultures and subcultures and norms and all these other things like there are in any other social realm, and you know, one of one of the themes that I find when people talk about social media is they often talk about it as if, as if it's some different kind of thing, but then 
all the issues end up being the same kinds of things that are in other parts of social life. Like, and, and that doesn't mean social media is the same as the rest of life by any stretch of the imagination, but at a broad level, like there are communities and norms and, and cultures and, and, you know, shared language and all those other things. And so lurking can be a way to kind of absorb some of that and decide if you want to wade in more or not. Um, I agree with you, Alexa, that there are, I think there are, interesting and important conversations that happen in social media that there you know it's hard to say that it's necessary to being an academic i think you could still be a very successful academic without being on social media yeah I know but i think like that yeah yeah so i don't think it's necessary but i certainly think it, like if you're asking yourself the question then you probably ought to like sign up for a Twitter account and, and start following some people and check mm-hmm. it out. Yeah. And I also think like, so, I mean, I asked like, do you need to be up to date on Twitter? And I sort of, you know, asked that facetiously <laughs> you, because you like, can't possibly be up to date. Yeah. On Twitter. yeah. <laughs> I think it does create a sensation that like you, it, it can be overwhelming and it, you can feel that you are sort of always behind and there are things that you haven't read that you should have read. Um, so I think it's good also to keep in mind that there's just like, I mean, it, this is like being an academic in general, right? There is just like a certain amount of not being totally up to date on everything that you have to accept and be okay with. Yeah, I don't. I definitely don't think it's a requirement. I think someone who is not on social media at all would, could be completely fine. I think it also depends because I think some topics have more activity on Twitter than others. So like if you're really, really into replicability or, you know, mm-hmm. new practices, then I think it would be weird. Like if I had a grad student who's really into replicability and wasn't on Twitter, I think I would be like, hmm, why don't you at least like read, you know, a few people's Twitter, whatever, like follow a few people. Um, or like if you're interested in open access journals or whatever, like mm-hmm. it would be weird given that there's a huge conversation on that stuff on social media but like if your main research interest is something else that where there's not a twitter version of that then you know you're not missing out on much so i think mm-hmm. it, it depends a lot um yeah that's yeah. a good point well let's let's talk about what what you use social media for because i think that that might help answer this question should you be on um mm-hmm. and you know what the first time i did one of those mentoring lunches the the they, they asked me to do this mentoring lunch and the topic, the, the title for the topic that they proposed was promoting yourself on social media. And I, I was like, yes, I'll do this, but I want to change the name of that mm-hmm. because I think that's, and I feel, it, to me, this feels, it actually feels very similar to how people, this evolution that quite a few people go through with, with just thinking about networking generally, mm-hmm. yeah. which is when, when you start off and you're told you need to network, and you 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 feel icky about it um and you think it's this thing where you have to be like a salesman for yourself in the like kind of cliched stereotyped view of the salesman right um selling yourself to people and and you know and the same thing i think some people first approaching social media think they're supposed to be promoting themselves or their work and that's i think not i think that's a very understandable thing because because as an outsider that's sort of what it might seem like um, and that might end up being a consequence of it. But if you go in deliberately trying to do that, it's going to be super weird. Yeah, right? like, it's, it's terrible. Yeah, I think there's two like, things. Think, like yeah. promoting your, yourself or your work on Twitter, I, I really don't like when that's either the main thing people do or when they do it too blatantly, even if it's not what they mostly use it for. Um, mm-hmm. And then I also hate when people, it's clear they're writing tweets in the hopes that they'll go viral. So they're like trying to say things that are controversial or trying to share things that like, yeah. Yeah. I yeah, just yeah. don't like it when people are, are 
blatantly using those strategies. So I'm curious what you guys think, but like my reaction when um, people post their own papers on like Twitter or Facebook is sort of like when people hold a birthday party for themselves, which is that like, (laughs) I'm happy that you did this. Now I get to go to your birthday or like post your paper. But I feel like people have some hesitation. Wait, is there something wrong with throwing a birthday party for yourself? Yeah. Oh, damn it. (laughs) I mean, I do it every year because, you know, it's good for other people. (laughs) Like other people want to go to parties. Wow. I think posting your own paper is so much worse than throwing your own birthday party. But you're not happy when people post their papers. Like you're not like happy to see... Uh, yeah, so I this is so interesting, right? There, I feel like there's a good and bad way to do this, and the good way is really good, and the bad way is kind of bad, yeah. and it it is hard to put your finger on the difference, right? But a lot of what it's the same thing with like telling your friends good news about yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, if your friend is Samin and she's just gonna shrug, <laughs> then that's different, right? But like, I get I get mad, like like not really mad mad, but I get like. I sort of roll my eyes when like something good happens to one of my friends and they don't tell me about it because they would feel bad about bragging. It's like, I'm your fucking friend. Like, That's tell me this idea. cool thing that happened. Like if, if yeah. Alexa had like not told us that she got tenure. No, of course. Um, because, yeah. you know, and so, so and, and I feel like there's a there's a way that if you're part of a community online and one of the things that I think is really cool is like hey, there's this new work out of my lab that I'm excited about and I want to share with people. And I know that I follow and am followed by other people in my subfield. I really yeah, like yeah. that. I like yeah. when people Let tell me, me about what they're working on. Let me just set the record straight because I, I don't want it to sound like, and I, I did explicitly say that I don't like when people <laughs> share their own work. Um, I don't like it when that's the main thing people use Twitter for. And I also don't like it when people use positive adjectives to describe their own work when they share it. Let other people say mm-hmm. nice things about your work. You can say you're excited about it. You can say you're really happy that it, you can finally share it. It's things like that. But don't mm-hmm. don't say that it's like important or what. I don't know. I don't like self-reports of yeah. like positive adjectives right. about the work. You can say positive adjectives about how you feel about being able to share it or whatever. Yeah, right. But yeah. like that's, no, that's there, good there's specific definitely feedback. A, there's because a boasty I feel like, way. Yeah. Go ahead. I feel like I sometimes have the reaction to people's posts um like i want to cringe when they're advertising their own work and then other times i'm like oh cool like they have a new paper this is exciting and i'm not sure always what the distinction is but that definitely could be one of them yeah i think that there's a boasty way there there was some there's there was someone i saw tweet once that like here's a link to my devastating critique like you don't get to call your own critique and of course you know but but no, like in the same way at a conference, if you go to coffee with someone, whether it's a friend or you're meeting someone for the first time, a very common thing that academics do is like say, hey, what, what are you working on? And you tell them, I'm working on this and here's why I'm excited about it. Mm-hmm. Like that's really cool on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think you can use those positive adjectives if they're like j- authentic reflections of your own, like I'm really excited about right. this new finding or this new method or this thing, whatever. Um, and let me tell you why. I care about it as opposed to, yeah, like the sort of, and I, I think that there, there's a way that that shines through when, when people are doing it to mm. just try to get status or prestige yeah. versus when they're like, and, and also like if you're doing it as an invitation to have a conversation, so right. you're saying like, I got this, I, I have this new paper 
and then people reply and and with questions or interact with you or whatever yeah. that's very different or like so you know just to be clear that i am a hypocrite like i've shared my work on twitter <laughs> <laughs> and often it's in the context like someone's saying does anyone know of a paper that blah 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 and then i'll like share my paper or my blog post or something like that but i try to do what i would do in real life which is say like i don't know if this is what you're looking for but maybe this will be helpful or like you know not say like oh yeah we did that we already we've already done that here it is or something like that like think about how you would say it in real life and then and one of the like for me one of the really important things for Twitter is not, I make it a point to try not to delete the phrases like hedges and things like that, that I would use in conversation. And I, I know it's pretty common to delete those on Twitter. There's the character limit. There's the fact that it's not a, a face-to-face conversation, etc. But I find it a lot more palatable to have interactions where people are including those hedges and those like, I don't know, those things that make it clear that you don't think everything is definitive, even if you have to fit it into 280 characters or 140 if you haven't updated yeah. the app. Um, so yeah, I I think I like it when people share in the way that they would in real life. And in real life, you wouldn't go about saying, here's my definitive paper that proves the blah, blah, or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, so, I mean, you mentioned like it not being the only thing you do. And I think maybe we should talk about that too. Like what, what are, you know, and we can talk, I feel like we're talking a lot about Twitter, which, you know, we can talk about Facebook too, which is a sort of different, interesting ecosystem, but like, you know, maybe sticking to Twitter or we can talk about both, but like, what are some of the other things that are part of how you interact? Right. So, I, I mean, I find that it's just like in other parts of social life where there's there's the the long-tailed curve right where the the things that have the highest frequency are the low interestingness kind of small talk or like joking around or sharing memes or whatever and then there's this kind of like long tail where if you you know if you plot if you do a frequency distribution you plot like how important or meaning meaningful is an utterance face to face it's like you get this big peak around zero and then a long tail and it's the same thing on twitter right and so i think being part of that just sort of and that that's and people will sometimes deride social media it's like oh i don't want to see what you ate for lunch yesterday it's like well that's the kind of con if you actually recorded your conversations day to day and samin you're smiling you probably know this from doing ear research Mm -hmm. right like that's the kind of conversations you're having day to day you just don't realize it you don't have deep, meaningful conversations all the time. Didn't you have a paper on this? <laughs> yeah. Yes, it failed to replicate also part of it. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> so now I have two papers. But, but so I think, and I think that's part of like how you build relationships with people. You know, we talked about like not going in to promote yourself and it's just like, you know, people do kind of like, they'll, they'll, they'll say, so you can do things like, Hey, I saw that. So it's not your own work. Like I saw this cool paper, this cool blog post, um, and here's what I think about it in a tweet or two, or just like sharing a stupid meme or something like that, or, you know, or and replying to other people sort of substantively, like there's a certain kind of replying that people sometimes do that's just sort of like, it seems like they're saying, yeah, cool to get noticed, which I, I would say like, it's not a huge problem, but it doesn't, it's not super effective, but like interacting with people is, is a good way to, to kind of, use social media um but i think you have to be on it more frequently to do that effectively right if you check twitter once a week you're not going to be able to really have and twitter is a very interactive medium well i feel like it's i feel like facebook is better for sustained dialogue or interaction like i find that with twitter either i like if i start 
if I write a tweet and people reply, I often don't reply to the replies. I often like I'm not actually looking for dialogue or I'm busy or whatever. Or like if I if it does get into back and forth, it just gets completely overwhelming extremely fast and then I just have to like walk yeah. away. So I find yeah. it hard to have the right that right in between on Twitter. Like I feel like it's kind of all or nothing. But Facebook seems a little bit better for like a conversation where maybe five to ten people are participating and it's possible to read all the comments. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you guys have any like hesitation about advising your your grad students to use? Mm, I really do mostly mean Twitter. I think. Um, like, do you have concerns that yeah, it will absorb a lot of their time in an unproductive way, or that they'll get sucked into these fights? I've been thinking about this. I recently. find it. I was someone, an assistant professor, was asking me recently about like if it's weird that they um, don't post on Twitter, like they follow but they barely ever post. And I was like, no, I think that's mm-hmm. what I did for several years. I think yeah, it, it makes yeah. sense. Like I find it weird if somebody immediately early in their career and or soon after joining a platform feel comfortable like quickly jumping in without you know like and I don't mean mm-hmm. there are plenty of early career people who are very active and I don't think it's weird at all but I feel I find that some people are too quick to be comfortable with that without like really getting the lay of the land and like figuring out exactly how sure they want to be about something before tweeting it and so on like mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people think those of us who are active um like tweet everything that goes through our minds whereas I delete more than half of the tweets I start um, and that's after many years of like practice at not starting the tweets you know in the first place Mm -hmm. so I think it makes a lot of sense to be pretty thoughtful and careful about it even even when there's not much at risk Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- I think I mean part of what you're asking Alexa is like spending too much time on it, mm-hmm. and I I do think for some people that might be a risk. Um, I you know obviously it varies. Like some some people they just they're kind of never sucked into it, and some people can get sucked into it just the amount of time. And so you know I would say it, it is a good if you th- if you think you're the sort of person who might get sucked into it, or if you find yourself wondering. It, it is a good idea to sort of step back and pay attention to that. I've never, with none of the graduate students that I've worked with or advised, has that ever been a concern? Um, but, uh, um, yeah, like, and the, you know, and there's tools. Like, I, <laughs> I have an app called Self-Control, which mm-hmm. is a very ironic name because it's, it's because I don't have self-control. But, like, if I, if I need to not be distracted, it's, it's this app that will um, block websites or block URLs and uh, from my computer completely. And so I can say, um, you know, for the next half an hour, do not let this computer, and there's no way to override it once, once you've started it. And you can say, do not let this computer talk to Facebook or Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if I, if I find that I'm like fucking around and like having trouble sort of getting down to business, I can just launch that app. And then, you know, and I always find like when, when I, if I do that, sometimes I'll just do it intentionally when I want to get started on like writing or something like that. But when, it, when I find, sometimes I'll do it because I'll be like, oh shit, I'm just fucking around all day. I, I really need to get down to work. And as soon as I launch it, I have this like, this moment of like, oh, like, oh, I was really, I, I was really getting sucked in it, huh. wasn't I? Cause like now I can't do it. Um, so there, there's things like that that are, I think if, if you do like, I think we, you know, we all have things where, you know, whether it's, you know, ways of, I shouldn't say we all do, but, you know, I think a lot of people have things that are, I mean, I've always had like a tendency to procrastinate with whatever's at hand. And so, you know, um, 
yeah, just being aware of that about yourself and managing it. I think the other thing that you mentioned, Alexa, is like getting into arguments and fights. And, mm-hmm. and th- that's a larger part of online culture that, again, like people act like that's exclusive to online and it's not. It's different Definitely. for sure. But it's not it's not like people don't get into, you know, disputes and conflicts and really awful whatever things in in the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say that if you're especially if you're a junior person, you want to be careful about like jumping in to correct people or, you know, or how you go about doing that. Right. Um, and if, if that's like what you find yourself spending a lot of your Twitter time doing or like explaining things to people who you mm-hmm. think don't understand them, mm-hmm. uh, you should probably step back and ask yourself if you're doing that a little too much. Cause there, there are definitely some people online. There are a lot of people mm-hmm. online who, you know, outside of academia and some inside of it who do that. Mm-hmm. There is something that I think, I think those kinds of fights or disagreements take on a different quality online. Um, And like, I'm very reluctant to like, um, I don't know, say that like online forums are making things worse in general. Um, But with arguments specifically, I just feel like there's something like you don't, yeah, you don't have, it's like when you yell at somebody in your car, right? there's like this like extra level of separation that makes people bigger assholes. Um, and I really think that that happens online too. And like, you know, it's like the same as like getting in a fight via text where it's like you, there's no, you can't tell what the person's tone is and you can't tell when they're joking. And, um, it's hard to just convey like warmth and niceness. And like, I think that is something that it's, I don't worry about that with everyone, but like, people who have like a certain sort of like argumentative personality I worry that um yeah I think you have to you you do if you're going to expose yourself to you know thousands of people say by being on Twitter you have to be able to chalk things up to people's personalities and say okay well some people are just jerks and I'm going to avoid those people it's not worth correcting them it's not worth you know going back and forth with them and it's a good lesson to learn in life and like I think it's for, to me, it's partly a matter of the platform. It's partly just a matter of sheer numbers. Imagine if there were 2,000 yeah. people in your department. You would have to learn yeah. <laughs> to deal with yeah. jerks in your faculty meetings and stuff, too. Um, and I also think... I, I don't disagree with anything you guys have said. I think that's right, that you know there is the potential for arguments and bad behavior and so on. And there's in some ways, it's worse on social media. In other ways, it might be worse in real life. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that one... May potentially good thing to exposing yourself just as an observer even like I don't mean getting involved in those disagreements and stuff but even just watching them happen is that maybe it'll help change the culture of science a little bit I feel like people are kind of scared that if they publish something someone's going to blog about it or it's going to get criticized or something like that and I think that that fear should be a natural part of doing science that like you should want to be you should expect that people are going to scrutinize your work and that it's fair game to mm-hmm. get criticized and so on. And maybe seeing that happening regularly on Twitter or on blogs will help desensitize people a little bit and make it feel like, oh, yeah, that is normal. That fear I have is a normal feeling when I'm going to make a scientific claim in public and stick my name to it and put it on my CV that I should have mm-hmm. a little bit of that, like, okay, I hope this is right. And if it's wrong, it's going to get found out. And that's the way it should be. And I'll have to learn a lesson from that and try to not to make that same mistake again. 
um, instead of like, oh God, because of social media now, there's the potential that it'll get found out and that's such a terrible thing. Like maybe right. we yes. can normalize it a little bit. Yeah, yeah I, think, I, I think what you're saying applies. It's really important about like legitimate criticism. And one of the things... There's a lot of, and you know, the, the like blow ups and flame wars and, and you know, all that stuff. It's another example of something that's low frequency, but high salience. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people who don't participate in social media, they think that's all it is, mm-hmm. is people yelling at each other. And I think it's important to recognize that, that because that stuff can also have an outsized influence, the fact that it's rare, we shouldn't like write it off for that, but that, that isn't for people who aren't active on social media like that isn't the sort of like day-to-day experience of everyone on social media um nevertheless it does happen to people um but what you're talking about samin is like legitimate criticism and there's a lot of one of the things that i think blogs were the starting point because they were around a little earlier Mm -hmm. but then you know social media is like there's a lot of really good interesting critique that goes on on there Mm -hmm. um and and when people can and and people can and, and very frequently do maintain a good level of civil discussion. And one, one of the things I've seen happen a few times recently is like people will be discussing a paper and they'll kind of be starting to get a little like maybe sort of snarky or whatever. And then there'll be a tweet that's like, hi, original author here. Yeah. Um, this is really interesting criticism. And all of a sudden everything changes. <laughs> and, and it would be great if people would sort of like, you know, keep in mind always that like they might be being read by the original authors and Mm -hmm. and tweet like that. I think that, you know, there is also the like the just sort of stupid arguing and the the, like, you know, endless disagreements and the flame wars and that kind of thing. And there what I would say is like, I think what you said, Alexa, is like it, it is something that happens with social media in a probably a different way and I think your analogy to like yelling at someone from your car is a good one that there's a sense of distance and I think that I've found for myself that that has diminished the more experience I have on social media I think it is a naive yeah 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 well like once you've had it happen once or twice where like someone's called you out on being a dick if you're if you're a if, if you're sort of sensitive to those cues, you'll change. And and one uh, a thing that you can do for other people is if you see someone crossing the line is to, if you feel like you know them well enough or, or you feel like you have an, an opening is to like message them and say, hey, I think you're coming off too strong here or something like that, right? And you can sort of help other people that way. Um, but, but yeah, those, those like, I think you also for yourself, like, there is this I've had this thing happen I don't know if you have where like you get into an argument and then you can't stop looking at your phone or whatever because you know and 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 I think once you've been through that a couple of times you start to be able to smell when a conversation is going that way and to like decide like do I really want to have another Bayesian versus frequentist (laughs) argument today Mm -hmm. no I don't think so I'm just gonna bow out yeah and that's a really important thing is that it's totally fine to bow out even if you've been an active participant in the dialogue for days or something or hours or whatever it's totally fine to be like see ya or you don't even have to say anything just ghost and that's one nice thing about Twitter I think for me like I've developed a rule about disagreements on Twitter um, and maybe off Twitter too, maybe just in life, which is like, don't, don't engage in disagreements with people unless you have a very high level of respect for them. Like if somebody, Mm -hmm. if you see somebody say something that you think is stupid or wrong or whatever, and you think about like engaging or correcting them, think like, 
if this person walked by my office and said that stupid thing, would I like get up from my desk and go out in the hallway and correct them? It's like only if I like thought I could learn something or I felt like, you know, their opinion was really important to me. And so I wanted to like try to change their mind or right. Like don't just disagree with someone because you disagree with them. There's plenty of people you disagree with in the world. Like you, you know, care about your time, value your time enough to like only engage when you think something when there's like the potential for productive conversation. What, yeah. One other thing that I think is, you know, talking about sort of similarities and differences with other kinds of social life, um, you know, all of the shitty parts of social life have find ways of reproducing themselves online. So I'm thinking in particular Mm -hmm. of like status biases. I'm thinking of gender inequities. I'm thinking of racial and ethnic inequities and, you know, one, one of the things, I mean, we've been talking a lot to, you know, about like, what should you do if you're starting off or, you know, presuming kind of a junior person. One of the things, and I, I certainly, I don't want to claim that I do this as much as I should or could, but one of the things I've been trying to start being more aware of is just sort of paying attention to how those things might be playing out and to find opportunities to like boost other people who are saying good things who might not have the sort of you know I mean I've been on Twitter a long time and I'm you know uh, I've been in academia a long time and so I you know and I'm a man and and I you know so I've got these certain sort of like amounts of status and and privilege and whatever and and so I think that's an important thing if you're going to be like trying to create a constructive environment because people if you're a man and you're listening to this like just people treat women like shit Uh, my wife you know is really she she cares a lot about sports and being a woman talking about sports on twitter is fucking brutal because there are people that will just sit and look for keywords and just like mansplain shit to her or Mm -hmm. attack her or whatever um and you know and thankfully like the the academic world doesn't seem quite as bad as the like talking about sports world but you know like keep an eye out for that kind of behavior and and step in and do something and and you know support people who are saying good things that you think that for whatever reason they are at risk of getting put down on or or you're seeing it happening Mm -hmm. i don't do you do you too feel like you have different experiences in social media by virtue of being women like do you have you experienced things that you're like no one you know people wouldn't be responding to me like this if I were a man or yeah I mean for me that I could I'm fairly confident I have a very strong feeling that that happens way more to me offline than online I feel like I Mm -hmm. get taken a lot more seriously online I that my experience is where I feel like I think this has something to do with my gender or other kind of status signals that I feel that much much more offline yeah I do too um most of the time when that happens to me like there are occasions where I very like acutely feel like somebody is mansplaining something to me um that like they have reason to think I would know more about them than they do but more often it's like um like an asymmetry in the threshold for acting like you have expertise on something I think I really think that there is an asymmetry between men and women. And so just like women spend less time, I think, talking that way. And then men can end up dominating conversations. That's like, that's mostly my experience with that kind of thing. Occasionally it'll be like somebody, you know, I don't know, like trying to explain something about social psychology to me. 
or that's not a psychologist and I'm just like um that's that can be annoying but I think I'm also better online when it happens at like laughing it off and forgetting about it so I I'm, I think it probably happens more to me online than I realize but I I don't react like it it doesn't affect me as much as when it happens face to face you know if I'm in a room in a meeting and not being taken seriously that has a much bigger mm-hmm. impact on me than if like people are talking over me on social media then I'm just like okay you guys suck and I walk away and I start a conversation somewhere else on Twitter um but yeah it does happen for sure and I think it's good to to keep an eye out for that yeah mm-hmm. yeah cool well, should we, I think we're, we've gone uh, a little over an hour, so we should probably, yeah. should we wrap it up? Yep. Is there, is there anything else, uh, is there anything else you guys wanted to say about social media? No. Nope. I think Alexa is no. a, a good example that you can, you can make it and even get tenure without being super active on social media. Although you are, you well, are that, a moderator of Psych Maps. I was just going to say, that's funny that like we're talking like Alexa's not the active yeah. social media person, but she's a moderator of Psych Map. Yeah, yeah but you're like, more active on social media than 90% of my department. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, th- I think, I and mean, like, okay, podcast, are, we talk- so. are we including like podcasts? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think being co-host of a podcast puts you in the that, top that fraction of a percent. Yeah. Well, maybe we can talk about that in the future. Although if you want to hear uh, about po- academic podcasting, people should listen to the Everything Hurts episode that you were on because you ended up talking to, well, Dan a little bit, although he had to disappear and help his wife give birth. But uh, James quite a bit about podcasting. Yeah. Whoa, which his was really cool. Wife gave birth during like in the middle of a podcast. He had to leave. Oh yeah. Yeah, she's That's her yeah, labor they, they started. Posted, they, they posted the the outtake on social media of like Dan getting the news and then having to tell uh, Samin and James that he had to mm. leave. To <laughs> yeah. it was pretty awesome. It was That's pretty. Cool. It was hilarious. James was hilarious, and I just was like laughing awkwardly the whole time (laughs) yeah we should i think we talked about that one before but we should link that one again because that's a that's a good one if you're interested in podcasting but Mm. all right well thank you everybody for listening um this has been the black goat and we will talk to you next time Mm.